Well, as we continue this morning in our time of corporate worship, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, it's a, it's a joy to not only be with you, but have the opportunity to open God's word this morning. Just continue to be so thankful for the body of Christ here at GIBC, thankful for God, for his graciousness to us, for his ongoing work within us, and we understand biblically that that work takes place by the Spirit of God through the Word of God, and, and so this is a precious time. Philippians 1, this morning as we sort of parachute into Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, we'll be looking specifically at Philippians 1, verses 12 through 20. A few years ago, I came across an old newspaper article from 1944, and this, this article addressed the issue of what it was like to be a wife in America during World War II. And the article begins like this. Marna Wilkins thinks she needs a more considerate husband, more money, more domestic help, less nervous strain, less housework, fewer children, a kinder mother, and more sympathetic friends. But what she really needs, this article said, is finer character. Well, aside from the historical curiosity of an article like this being published in a newspaper, which is kind of hard to fathom today, it's fascinating to see that the, the cultural context of life may be different, being a wife during World War II, but the human heart remains pretty much the same, doesn't it? Because most of us here this morning, whether we would actually say it out loud, we often find ourselves thinking that that what we really need in life is, is a little more of this and a little bit less of that. And see, the reason that we often think this way is because most of us have, have bought into this lie, at least to some degree, that contentment in life is dependent upon our circumstances. Most of us are given to this notion that, that in order to be content, in order to be truly joyful and satisfied in life, I'll need an abundant amount of A, B, and C and the immediate removal of X, Y, and Z. If only my spouse would be more loving. Only the strain in this particular relationship would be resolved. If only my kids would turn out okay. If only I could somehow overcome this physical infirmity or this financial challenge. If only the the difficulties of these circumstances would change. If only I had more friends, more money, a bigger house, a better job. If only I could succeed at such and such an endeavor. If only the Lord would see fit to remove this trial from my life. Whatever it is, and as you think about your own life, you can fill in the blank, but we tell ourselves this lie and we're so quick to believe it that the only way that we can truly be content in life is if our circumstances would go the way that we want for them to go. As we come to the word of God, we're going to find that what really needs to change is not something about our circumstances, but something about our character. As we turn this morning to Philippians chapter 1, I, I would submit to you that the very first thing that needs to change, at least for most of us, is that we need to repent of the idolatrous desires that dominate our hearts. Beloved, the, the biggest enemy of contentment 
It's not unpleasant circumstances. The biggest enemy of contentment is an idolatry of heart that is, that is so attached to a given object that it absolutely must have this object in order to be satisfied. And so as we think about why it is that the joy and contentment are so elusive for so many Christians, the primary reason for many of us is because we have certain desires that have come to rule us in such a way that it's, it's not merely that we want something, but that we must have it. The object of the desire may not be sinful in and of itself, but if the truth be known, our very happiness depends upon it, and thus it has become an idol on the altar of our hearts. That's why we sometimes use terminology like the comfort God. We, when a desire for something like comfort has, has grown to the point where we'll sin to get it, sin to keep it, and sin if we can't have it, comfort then has become a false God in our lives. Well, it's certainly not the only one. And as we come this morning to the words of Paul in Philippians 1 verses 12 through 20, we'll be looking specifically at three idolatries of the heart that hold us in bondage to the sin of discontentment. Again, three idolatries of the heart that hold us in bondage to the sin of discontentment. Now, the way that this passage helps us to identify these idolatries, interestingly, is not that Paul, in this context, is rebuking the Philippians for having these idols in their hearts, but rather the way that this passage helps us to identify these idolatries is through the example of Paul, whose heart was so free from them that he was able to say later in chapter 4, I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. In any and every circumstance, he says, I have learned the secret. What we find is part of that secret to contentment is, is found here in chapter 1 as the apostle provides an update regarding his circumstances as a prisoner in Rome. Because as we look more closely at this passage, what we'll find is, is not simply an update from Paul, but tremendous insight into his heart and, and how he viewed those circumstances and how it was that he was able to be joyful and content regardless of what those circumstances were. And what I love about this passage is that it gives hope to the Christian who says, I know that I'm not content, but I don't know why. It's not uncommon. Maybe that's you, in fact, this morning. You, you know that you're not truly content in life, and, and yet you don't have clarity on why that is. And this morning, as we, as we look at this passage, I would simply ask you, could it be that some of these idolatries have, have taken root in your heart so that the first step on the path to contentment is to identify and repent of them? Well, what are those idolatrous desires that so often hold us in bondage? Well, as we come to verses 12 to 14, we find that the first one is, number one, the enjoyment of my earthly comforts. The enjoyment of my earthly comforts. And this is certainly the one that all of us can relate to, not, not simply because our lives are, are filled with, with earthly comforts of one kind or another, but, but because all of us are tempted to, to cherish these comforts at the level of idolatry. 
Beloved, if, if earthly comfort is, is not only something that you desire, but something that you must have either in the moment or in your life as a whole, it's become an idol in your heart that must be forsaken. Now, as we think about the broader context and how this passage fits into that context, here in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul greets the Philippians in verses 1 and 2. He prays for them in verses 3 to 11. And then dropping down to verse 27, he begins this, this lengthy section of exhorting them, but, but tucked here in the middle in verses 12 to 26, and we'll just be looking at 12 to 20, but here in this middle section, the Apostle Paul steps back and he gives them an update about his circumstances as a prisoner in Rome. And what we find is that the, the focus of Paul's heart, what, what the Apostle most want the Philippians to know and understand is not how unpleasant and unjust the whole experience has been, but rather the way that the Lord is using it to further the spread of the gospel. Look at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, so here's what I most want you to know when you think of me in prison, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So, so, so think about this with me. Here, here's the Apostle Paul, nearly two years into his prison sentence, falsely accused, a, a very difficult time of affliction, suffering, talk about uncertainty, not, not only denied the basic freedoms and comforts of, of everyday life, but also the, the question of life and death hanging in the balance, and not a word about the difficulty of his circumstances because all that matters to Paul in the big picture is the outcome of those circumstances. They have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Greater progress. This focuses on the increasing scope of gospel proclamation. In other words, the, the confinement of Paul in prison has directly led to, to more people hearing the gospel, and that's what brought joy to the heart of Paul. Well, how exactly is it that his circumstances have led to the greater progress of the gospel? Well, two specific ways. First one in verse 13, second one in verse 14. The first way, verse 13 is that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. So Paul says my, my circumstances have led to the greater progress of the gospel, first of all, within the Roman government itself. Now, he doesn't explicitly say that he preached the gospel to these Roman guards, but, but rather that his imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become known to them. And the, really the key phrase in verse 13, this phrase, in the cause of Christ. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ, Paul says, has become well known. In other words, the, the, the thing that has become so clear to these soldiers is that, is that Paul is in prison not simply because of a crime, but uh, it's not because of his politics, but, but because of his commitment to the proclamation of Christ. That's what has become so well known. Now this, this Praetorian Guard in verse 13, this is the, the palace guard in the city of Rome. This is the elite military troops who served as a, as a special bodyguard for the Roman emperor. And apparently one of their responsibilities at this time was to guard the apostle Paul round the clock 
most likely, historians think, rotating on a, a four-hour shift with one of them perhaps even chained to him at every moment. And so not only would they have known that Paul was a prisoner because of his commitment to Christ, but, but, but he would have had abundant opportunity to preach the gospel to those guarding him. And, and over the course of these two years, both the, the testimony of Paul as a prisoner for Christ and, and the very message of the gospel itself had become well known to these soldiers. My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. And, end of verse 13, he says, to everyone else. Most likely a reference to those in the Roman government, not part of the Praetorian Guard. I love this imagery. One writer said this. He said, it's like Paul has become a Trojan horse who has entered into the very heart of the Gentile world to which Christ had dispatched him as an apostle. Isn't that great? And so of course he's joyful. Of course he's content because the, the advance of the gospel was more important to him than personal comfort. If some kind of personal suffering, if some kind of inconvenience in his life was the only price that had to be paid for the gospel to go forth, so be it, Paul said. Well, notice then a second way that Paul's circumstances led to this greater progress of the gospel. Look at verse 14. And he says that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, context here is important because back in the early church, and Rome was no exception, persecution was common and persecution was severe. And even though this was the early 60s, a few years before it kind of ramped up and reached its height under Nero, the storm clouds were already brewing and the church was tempted, of course, to shrink back in fear because of the threat of persecution. And so as the believers in Rome, in this context, under this threat of persecution, as they sought to be faithful, not only in general, but specifically faithful to the Great Commission to preach the gospel, they, they needed what? They needed greater boldness to preach the gospel. And the means, Paul says, through which they received this boldness was Paul's imprisonment. Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Now, a couple of observations here. First of all, keep in mind that God is ultimately the one who provided the strength and courage to preach the gospel. That's why Paul describes them as trusting in the Lord. Let's notice, secondly, that what the Lord provided was, quote, courage that is boldness in the face of opposition, to speak the word of God, that's the gospel, without fear, no concern about consequences. And so Paul says, and in spite of this, this very real threat of persecution, God gave them the boldness and he gave them the, the resolution to fearlessly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ without concern about consequence. They, they trusted in the Lord and the Lord provided them with courage. And again, as we said before, the means which God used to give them this courage was 
the persecution of Paul as a prisoner in Rome. Most of the brethren, notice, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, that's why they trusted in the Lord, because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You might say it this way, the, the chains that bound the apostle Paul had liberated the Roman believers to fearlessly proclaim the word of God. After all, I'm sure they reasoned something like this. If the, if the Lord can give Paul courage to persevere in the midst of being imprisoned with his very life on the line, then why can't he do the same for us? And so they trusted in the Lord. They now had far more courage, Paul says, to speak the word of God without fear. And so as, as Paul is, is sitting there in prison, Think about this with me. His, his perspective, sitting there in prison, his perspective was, was all things being equal. I'd, I'd rather not be here, right? It wasn't a glutton for punishment, right? It wasn't pain for the sake of pain, inconvenience for the sake of inconvenience. All things being equal, I'd rather not be here. All things being equal, I'd, I'd rather have my freedom and the comfort and convenience of a normal life. And yet, Paul says, I rejoice because my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What a perspective. See, if Paul had never gone to prison, the Roman government would have been far less exposed to the gospel and the Roman Christians far less courageous in their evangelism. And so Paul is able to rejoice in the midst of personal suffering because his desire for the comforts of everyday life was eclipsed by his desire to see Christ exalted through the proclamation of the gospel. That's why Paul can say later in chapter 4, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. Men and women, could it be that the reason that some of you struggle to be content is that your heart at times becomes so fixed on a personal comfort of some kind that you end up being enslaved to your circumstances. And in that, in that season, as long as life is going smoothly, there's a spring in your step and a smile on your face. But once it's, it's taken away through, through some kind of trial or suffering and affliction, then, then, then joy and, and contentment, they're hard to come by. Well, to the degree that that's you this morning, the first step on the path to contentment is to, is to recognize and to repent of this idolatry that has come to grip your heart. The enjoyment of my earthly comfort. Secondly, this morning, the second idolatry of the heart that must be forsaken. Number two, the success of my personal aspirations. Whatever they may be in life, the success of my personal aspirations. We see this in, in verses 15 through 18 where, where Paul writes this. Notice in verse 15, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Now, what we find here in the, in the transition from verse 14 to verse 15 is, is Paul's expanding on what he's just said in the previous verse about the believers in Rome preaching the gospel. He then divides those gospel preachers into two categories. They both preach Christ, so that much they have in common, but they, they preach the gospel with radically different motivations. The first group, middle of verse 15, from envy and strife, whereas the second group, end of verse 15, from goodwill. First group, middle of verse 17, out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives. And the second group, verse 16, out of love. So the stark contrast between the two. And it's really this, this second group that's easier to understand, right? Because they, they preach the gospel with the best of motivations, don't they? They, they preach out of goodwill and a heart of love, which in this context refers specifically to their, their heart of love and goodwill toward Paul himself. They, 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 they know him, they love him, they see him as a fellow partner in the ministry of the gospel. That's why verse 16 says, the latter do it out of love. Why? Knowing, or because they know, Paul says, that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, Paul writes. In other words, Paul, Paul's in prison for preaching, and these fellow preachers in Rome who love him and have a heart of goodwill toward him and his ministry, they're, they're confident here that, that God sovereignly has appointed him to be in prison and to defend the gospel in the way that he is. But see, the obvious implication here is that this other group of preachers doesn't have this same confidence about Paul. In fact, it's not simply that they've lost confidence in Paul, but that they've set themselves up in such a way that they've become his rival. Maybe not his enemy, but certainly his rival. Notice in verse 15 that they're preaching Christ even from envy. They become jealous of the Apostle Paul, most likely because of his previous effectiveness in preaching the gospel. And so they were preaching the gospel themselves, but doing so from envy. And then not only envy, but also strife, he says. Strife, animosity towards someone you see as a rival. That, that's how these preachers saw the Apostle Paul, and it was this, this hostility that motivated them, at least to some extent, in their preaching. Beloved, a spirit of envy and rivalry and competition in ministry will, will inevitably lead to strife and animosity toward others. Because gradually, those other people, along with the gifts they possess, they'll be seen as a, as a threat to my own personal success and prestige and aspirations in ministry. And be, because they're threatening something so dear to me, they're, they're now the object of my hostility. And that's what had happened in the hearts of these other preachers. They were preaching Christ, even from envy and strife. In fact, notice how Paul describes them even more specifically in verse 17. The former, he says, that first group, they, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives. Paul says they're not preaching with a sincerity of motivation. They're 
They're driven by selfish ambition. They're, they're driven by the kind of selfish ambition that wants to, to promote themselves and gain some kind of advantage over Paul, who they see as their rival. That's why it says in verse 18 that they proclaim Christ in pretense. Pretense being an appearance, an outward appearance that's designed to conceal someone's true motivation. What then were the true motives of these other gospel preachers? What exactly? We know the heart motives, but what were they thinking to accomplish? Well, notice the end of verse 17. Thinking, he says, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. That's their desire. That's their motivation. That's their intention in preaching the gospel. Paul doesn't come out and explain how it is that they intended to cause him distress. All all we really know for sure, we're trying to piece some things together, we're not told everything, but all we really know for sure is that, A, they were genuine Christians, because the word some at the start of verse 15 refers back to the term brethren in verse 14. So, A, they were genuine Christians, and B, they were indeed preaching Christ, Paul says that twice, And C, they were motivated by envy and strife and selfish ambition and ultimately with a goal and a desire to cause distress in the life of Paul while he's in prison. So what exactly is going on here? Well, the most likely scenario is that they were were looking, again, remember they saw Paul as their rival. They were envious of him. They were jealous of him. They they were looking at Paul's imprisonment as as an opportunity to get the upper hand by by taking center stage and outshining the apostle in his absence. And it, it could be that this is often the case in these situations that they assumed, because of the mindset that they had, they assumed the same of Paul, that that they assumed that Paul had that same competitive spirit toward them, and, and that therefore that he would be distressed to think that others were enjoying the spotlight and success that, that could have been his were he not locked away in prison. That would seem to fit the description in verse 17. They preach Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. As D.A. Carson writes, we can even imagine their pompous reflections. It really is sad that so great a man as Paul has frittered away his gospel opportunities simply because he's so inflexible. After all, we managed to remain at large and preach the gospel. Paul must, must have some kind of character flaw that puts him in the path of trouble. After all, our ministry is blessed while, while he languishes in prison. That, that could have been exactly the kind of thing that Paul's describing in verse 17. See, without knowing the exact specifics, it is clear that these men were preaching with, with selfish motives that were specifically directed against Paul and designed to cause him distress. So how does Paul respond? I mean, here he is in prison. Apparently, he's gotten word of this, right? It's clear that he's heard about this. He's aware of this. He's in prison. Lots of time to think, right? Sometimes late nights are hard, hard times when you can't sleep and there's nothing to do but think when there's something burdening your heart. Talk about lots of time to think. He's in prison. How does he respond? Not, not only has he been removed from center stage... 
Now these other preachers have come along. They've set themselves up as over and against him. They've taken over the spotlight. They're promoting themselves, seeking to hurt Paul's reputation in the process while, while he himself sits there in chains like a, a forgotten failure, waiting to see the outcome of this trial. How does he respond? Verse 18. What then? In other words, so what, what does it matter? Paul, in effect, says... It doesn't matter. And, and what does matter to you, Paul? Look at verse 18. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. That is unbelievable. You see, most people in Paul's situation just kind of want to set the record straight, right? I mean, that's how we, that's how we feel when our a reputation is being damaged in some way. I want to set the record. Most people in Paul's situation would have taken the next four chapters to, to condemn his rivals and defend himself. And yet Paul says, what does it matter to me as long as Christ is being proclaimed? There's a certain amount of irony here, if you think about it. Because these other preachers, they're... Their goal in their evangelism, at least to some extent, we can understand probably there's some mixture in their motives, but to, 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 their goal was to use their evangelism to cause distress in the heart of Paul, right? Let's do this to cause him distress, but in the end, it only gave him more reason to rejoice because he was, he was far more concerned about the progress of the gospel than his own personal prestige, than his own personal aspirations for ministry. See, Paul knew it wasn't about him or his reputation. It wasn't about what other people thought about his success as a preacher, and it wasn't about any personal aspirations for ministry that he might had in which he got to be the guy on center stage. It wasn't about any of these things. It was all about the exaltation of Christ and the preaching of the gospel. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. This is challenging to our hearts, is it not? It's challenging to mine. I mean, think about how it is that you respond when your various plans in life, your various aspirations are, are frustrated in some way, and, and life doesn't go the way that you had planned. You had your hopes set on something. You planned it out. You were striving toward it. This is the outcome you saw in your mind, and it, and it didn't work out. Could it be that your heart at times is so set on the success of those personal ambitions that this desire to have life go according to plan has become an idol in your heart. And it could be an issue of pride because you want to be seen as a success in the eyes of other people, or it could just simply be what all of us struggle with, just wanting what I want, right? But if the fulfillment of your plans in life, think about this, if the fulfillment of your plans in life, whether big plans or small plans, whether, whether ministry plans or other plans, if that fulfillment is the key, is the prerequisite for your joy and contentment, 
then the second idolatry of the heart that you must forsake is the success of your personal aspirations. Well, thirdly and lastly this morning, number three, the assurance of my physical well-being. Three idolatries of the heart that must be forsaken to find true contentment, the enjoyment of my earthly comforts, the success of my personal aspirations, and the assurance of my physical well-being. In other words, the assurance that, that despite whatever current threat to my physical welfare that I might be experiencing right now, when all is said and done, the assurance that I'm going to be okay. That's, that's what we want in those situations, right? I want to know that in the end, it's going to be okay. And, and beloved, that might be the very issue in question for some of you here this morning, maybe, or maybe someone you love because of a, of a medical condition, or maybe even now you're, you're waiting to get some clarity from the doctor, and that's not an easy position to be in. That's, that's very difficult. It's very painful. It, 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 it kind of takes some love and support and, and encouragement from the body of Christ. But, but, but the good news in the midst of all of this is that for the Christian, God can strengthen your heart regardless of that uncertainty, to be joyful and content. Because that's exactly what we see modeled by Paul in verses 18 to 20. Now, what we find at the end of verse 18 is that, if you notice, Paul makes a transition here from his, his present circumstances to his future expectation. And that's reflected in the way that he moves from a, a present tense verb to a future tense verb. End of verse 18. And in this I rejoice, present tense. Yes, and I will rejoice, future tense. So Paul says, I, I will rejoice. I do rejoice and I will rejoice. Now, why, why is he so confident that his joy will continue? Well, verse 19, here, here's why. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And given the context, it's, it's tempting to see this as deliverance from prison. But see, the problem with that interpretation is that Paul says at the end of verse 20 that he's not sure whether he'll live or die, whether he'll be released from prison or sentenced to death. And so we, we wonder how Paul's confidence could be based on the certainty that he'll be delivered from prison when, when he then undermines that certainty in the very next verse. And well, as, we, as we press into it further, we, we find that this word translated deliverance is actually the standard Greek word that, that refers to spiritual deliverance in the sense of, of salvation. In fact, Paul uses this very same word two other times in Philippians. Both times it's simply translated salvation, just like it is throughout the New Testament. So this literally reads, I, I know that this will turn out for my salvation. That's what the Legacy Standard Bible says. Which maybe raises its own question, right? Well, what does that mean? It'll turn out for, for my salvation. Well, Paul, Paul doesn't mean that it will turn out for his salvation in the sense that that one day in the future his sins will be forgiven and he'll be saved. He's, he's already been saved, of course, and received eternal life. No, no what Paul's referring to here is, is the, we could say it this way, the ultimate and final salvation of one day being vindicated by God 
on the day of Christ in the heavenly court. Again, the ultimate and final deliverance of one day being vindicated by God on the day of Christ in the heavenly court. It's helpful to, to realize that verse 19 is actually a, a quotation of Job 13:16, where Job is suffering and has become a laughing stock among those around him. And yet he's, he's confident that one day he'll be vindicated by God. One day the, the present verdict of his rivals will be replaced by the, the ultimate and final verdict of God himself. And that's, that's the kind of future vindication that Paul has in mind. Regardless of how these fellow gospel preachers may view him, and regardless of the final verdict of the earthly court in Rome, Paul is confident that ultimate vindication will come from God in the heavenly court because he will have persevered. He will have stayed the course. He will have stood for the cause of Christ and not been put to shame in anything, to borrow the words of verse 20. Well, why is Paul so confident of this perseverance? Well, two reasons. Because of the prayers of the Philippians and the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? I know that this will turn out for my future vindication. I know that I'll persevere through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. We can say it this way real simply. The, the Philippians will pray, the Spirit will provide, and Paul will persevere. Paul will persevere. And he will do so, verse 20, notice, according to my earnest expectation and hope. My earnest expectation and hope. Well, what is that earnest expectation and hope? Well, looking back at verse 20, it's twofold. First of all, here's this hope that, that I will not be put to shame in anything. In other words, I'm, I'm confident that I won't disgrace myself by failing to be a faithful ambassador of Christ. And secondly, middle of verse 20, that with all boldness, that's the boldness of Paul as he trusts in the Lord. So, so, so what is it that he's confident of? That, notice that Christ will even now, as always, notice this, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Christ will be exalted in me, Paul says, whether by life or by death. That's my earnest expectation and hope. And here it is that we really come to the heart of Paul, do we not? I mean, think about it. He's languishing in prison without the, the, the basic comforts and freedoms of normal life. He's awaiting trial. His very life is on the line, and he fully realizes that he may soon be executed by the Roman government. And yet, think about this. In fact, if you can, step back for a moment. Put yourself in that position. Think about the times in your life when there's uncertainty and you're, you're contemplating lots of time to think and you're contemplating different outcomes and you're fearful of this one, hopeful for that one, not so sure. Think about Paul in the midst of it all. What's his greatest desire? His greatest desire is not that his life would be spared, but that his Savior would be exalted. Isn't that amazing? 
Not that his life would be spared, but that Christ would be exalted. And and whether that exaltation takes place through his life or his death, through his his freedom or his execution, that's really a a secondary matter. Because in Paul's heart, it's, it's not about Paul. It's about Christ. It's about the gospel. Well, he could say in Acts 20, 24, he says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel. That with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. Beloved, if, if you, as you think about your own heart, as you examine your heart, if, you're, if your heart has been gripped over a long period of time by, by an idolatrous desire for, for earthly comforts and the, the success of certain personal ambitions in life and and the assurance of your physical well-being. If that's you this morning, it, it may not happen overnight, but the first step on the path to contentment is repentance. It's repentance. The first step on the path to being at peace with trials and and afflictions and difficulties in life, and maybe you find yourself swimming in them even now. The first step to being at peace with that kind of uncertainty is to ask God to give you the grace to, to loosen your grip on those things that don't ultimately matter for eternity anyway. And not only turn from that idolatry, but that God would give you the grace to fix your heart on the exaltation of Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. That's what Paul was all about. Because that's what the people of God are all about. That's that's why he he called us out of darkness and into the the kingdom of his beloved son to be a people who would give their lives to, to knowing Christ and serving Christ and preaching Christ because we're fully convinced that the only thing that truly matters in this life is the exaltation of Christ. And regardless of the persecution that comes along the way, whether whether in the streets of Rome or the prisons of Rome, we'll just keep on preaching Christ. We'll keep on preaching Christ. We'll certainly be grateful for any temporal blessings that that God may give us along the way. And There's nothing wrong with with praying for those blessings and enjoying them when they come, but, but we will not insist upon them because we can trust not only that God will give us exactly what we need in this life, isn't that a comfort, but that we can also trust that if our hearts are fully his, that he will use even the most difficult seasons in our lives to exalt 
the name of Jesus. And that's what will bring us the greatest joy. That's what will make us truly content. Our Father, we do confess how easy it is to drift, and for some of us, that drift has taken place gradually, but then when we look up and into a passage like this, we see how far we have drifted. We see how, uh, how strong a grip certain idolatries do find in our hearts. And Father, at those moments, and perhaps even now, as we consider these realities, we would ask for your grace. Father, we would say we repent. Help us repent. Help us to loosen our grip upon those things in this world that we cherish more than you, that we cherish more than your eternal plan of redemption, your design of putting your name on display through the exaltation of Christ, through the proclamation of the gospel. Father, may we, as we turn from this sin, may our hearts come to embrace your purpose in this world. May we be so overwhelmed by the need of being part of seeing the advance of the gospel that ultimately our prayers, our lives, the, the ways that we respond to our circumstances would all be driven by this eternal perspective that your plan of redemption is moving forth, you are calling your people to yourself, and you are pleased to use us in the process. Father, what a joy that is. What a privilege it is to be yours. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen.